My name is Arthur Bray. I'm an editor and creative producer born in Hong Kong before moving to the UK, where I founded music collective Yeti Out. Now back in Asia, we produce music and art-related events, design clothing, and release music from underground artists on our label Silk Road Sounds. Working in fashion and with magazines and labels as a writer and producer has taught me that a good idea is only as good as how it's expressed. Moreover, the importance of storytelling in each multimedia project. My name is Tevin Lee. I'm a multimedia creative born in Hong Kong and raised in Ohio. Having started in advertising and fashion, I decided it's time to start my own creative agency in 2012 and have been working closely with record labels and brands in the region, specializing in music videos and fashion films. I also DJ, host parties, and manage a rapper named Young Queens. By 2017, I decided to explore my creativity through fabric and silhouettes. This is where the private label came about, and at the moment, I split my time between directing, consultancy, DJing, and events, as well as the clothing label. Storytelling and fashion go hand in hand, and Joyce has been a perfect example of this harmony. Celebrating this connection in this latest podcast, we speak with Eugene Khan, former editorial director at Hypebeast and founder of digital publication Makin. Eugene moved to Hong Kong from Canada initially to pursue a career playing football, but instead found himself involved in the world of editorial and digital content creation. Makin was founded alongside good friend and former Hypebeast creative director Alex Malin, with the aim of creating stories for the curious. I had the pleasure of working with Eugene at Hypebeast during my time as an editor for the publication, and shortly after meeting Tedman at a Smoky Isakaya, we started hanging out more, which led to pop-up parties, tours around Asia, and music projects during the likes of Paris Fashion Week. First, I think we should maybe talk about how we're connected to begin with, and how everyone has linked in each other's lives before. I think you guys kind of knew each other beforehand, and then I met Arthur through Hypebeast. I actually met him just slightly earlier, though. Right. Do you remember? I think yeah, I met random, you at Hot Pot. Right. I remember we started talking, and then you just went really deep with the whole Yeti. It was still called Yeti in the basement at the time. Oh, really? You just started talking about that. I was like, "Yo, that's crazy!" Like, I never really thought. Anyone in Hong Kong would be into this type of music, and then basically you just went on for like two hours. We we talked for two hours, ignored like the other 20 people that were in the room. You mentioned that you were gonna have a job interview the following week at Hypebeast, and I think that's how you guys probably yeah. So all around the same time then. Yeah. Right. What, was it? what year was that? 2012. Yeah. Something like that. Because yeah. then I remember meeting Eugene obviously at work, and then finding out that you guys play football together. No, actually, no. Yeah, I had met him through Ephraim. Ah, yeah. and I guess like around that time, it was 2012, and everyone was definitely Hong Kong based. But back then, you were still working at your then yeah, company, right? Yeah, I was right? doing he 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 at the time. So we directed a lot of music videos, fashion videos, and, and that's how we got connected as well. Yep. Um, just kind of you know from we were doing a lot of videos, and then I remember I I was doing parties. That was the first like retro disco night. Right. That was down the road. Was yeah, that was down the road. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's crazy. That was like 2012, I think. It's a pretty uh, small but connected community. For sure, for sure. Within Hong Kong, you know, we're talking about high beast as like an intersection where a lot of the projects took place. Eugene worked at high beast for a while. What, what was your role again? When I left, I was the editorial director. I was your boss, basically. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. In other words, you met Alex through that, and yeah. then you guys didn't Alex, make it. Alex, I met. He was originally living in the U.S. at the time. So Alex Malin is my Co-founder at Macon, and you know, during that time, it was just so interesting because, like, 
here you had a bunch of people in many ways building businesses and companies without really having the know-how, but also having such a like a blank slate. So there really was no right or wrong thing. Like even building like digital media companies wasn't like a thing that you could just follow. Okay, I saw how they did it. Now I can I can do it. Now it's different, right? You gotta be like, you can look at, oh, I, I saw how Monocle built their business. I want to go the route of a monocle. And then you didn't really have that back in the day. And you know, I think that, you know, to that point about Hypebeast being such like a, a great platform, like a lot of our friends that we still know now and like are doing other things, like all came through Hypebeast in many ways, right? And I think that that's sort of like one of the most interesting things because we all know that for what Hypebeast represents on a global scale, I don't think many people would have expected it to originally be headquartered in Hong Kong, right? Mm, but yeah. somehow, like I, I have this conversation with Arthur a lot. I'm like, Hong Kong in itself is not a massive place, but there is something from a personality and point of view perspective that actually I think is quite global. It's like we can never really build stuff that can only live in Hong Kong. It has to be something that expands outside, you know, this region. And I think, yeah, obviously, Arthur's done it really well. And that, to me, is sort of the most unique thing about Hong Kong slash Hypebeast. It's like, hey, you know what? We were able to build something in a place where people didn't expect it to come from. And then how do we find a way to make it relevant to the rest of the world? Mm. So you think for brands or startups to really be benefiting from being in Hong Kong, their sort of business model has to be of a global reach? I think so. I think ultimately the the reason why it needs to be global is because like it's such a small market, right? It's only 7 million people. It's like, it's an affluent market for the most part. But then also it's like coming in, testing and validating something and then recognizing how can I make this a bit bigger, a bit broader. Albeit like the caveat is that Asia itself isn't just this like generic form, right? There's like so many different cultures, language barriers that exist, but it just so happens that based on proximity, it's like, hey, you can reach out. Like I always use, you know, what Arthur does is a great example. It's like, why has Yeti become sort of the premier event slash party company in Asia? And how come that didn't come from Japan, South Korea, China? It's because you guys could have never built what you did only in Hong Kong, right? Yeah, and I think we've spoken about this before to an extent. Like, there's a few good points there. But I also feel like maybe it's to do with the curiosity of the people who run it and whether or not they want to expand past their own area, right? So it's kind of like, you know, I've also had this conversation with my brother Tom before where we talk about different crews in like Shenzhen, like the oil guys, or Seoul with Cake Shop and stuff like that. And I think there is a good sort of like uh, mutual support system there. But I feel like maybe language barriers prevent people from connecting, right? So. I've heard before people describe Asia's network as the United States of Asia, right? So like, you know, like United States of America, you can, you know, fly six hours from LA to New York and everyone's still speaking the same language. The culture may differ a little. Here you fly an hour to Vietnam and it's like, you know, completely different, right? So I think there is still that sort of like connectedness between the different countries. But at the same time, because it's so drastically different, that might also be the reason why people don't connect as easily. Yeah, I think it's like both a blessing and a curse. I think from the actual sort of reality of it is that to be able to speak English is a, a tremendous privilege because I think you have a better chance of speaking English to someone going anywhere in the world than you do their, any other language, right? For the most part, mm-hmm, right? Mm-hmm. Maybe obviously French, Spanish, those are other ones that come into play. But you kind of enter this sort of bifurcated thing where it's either you're big enough to support yourself, which I think, you know, a Shenzhen, a China probably has enough of a domestic market or like Korea, but Hong Kong itself, like on a domestic level, it's very hard for you to just do something in Hong Kong, yeah. right. which is why like 
they can continue to operate in their own sort of lane, but you can't do that in Hong Kong, especially culturally, right? We all recognize like there's culture in Hong Kong, but it's not like the same culture that people prototypically right. define. Which is why I think what's interesting is like, yes, like on the one hand, like, you know, being based here means that you're very much connected to the, the cities around you. But I also think that the reason why, for example, we're so regionally driven is because our appetite is sort of bigger than what Hong Kong can provide. So it's not exactly like a business model where we're like, hey, you know what? We're trying to be a pan-Asian collective. It's just that for what we're trying to achieve, yeah. it just couldn't have been done if we did it week in, week out in Hong Kong because it's just isn't that audience, right? So, but then yeah. in Asia, in Asia as a whole, there's more of that audience. Like, you know, if you put Bangkok in the scene and then like Singapore and then Seoul, then suddenly you've got a pretty, pretty comfortable but also hectic and busy touring schedule, right? Which I think is enough work, you know? But yeah, speaking about work, I mean, like, Tedman, you, you obviously work in film, events, production. Is there enough work for you in the creative scene locally? Like, I think that's a really interesting point. You know, if you focus on doing Hong Kong, you could make a decent living for yourself or get big enough still. I think maybe a few years ago, you could have still done that. But that's why I think when we talk about when we all first met around like 2012, 2013, I actually think that was probably the most interesting time in a while. That was sort of when brands started noticing about social media and we all kind of started doing what we do. I actually started without really knowing how to direct videos. We just started a creative agency. We do what we usually do, but that's when brands and singers and stuff started coming in and wanting us to do music videos. But we basically went at it without really knowing the background of how to do, a, how to plan a proper video shoot, like, you know, jumping in from different shots, how to arrange it, et cetera, et cetera. For us, it was good because that opened up a lot of space for us to kind of just get creative and, and do what we do. As far as the market, I feel like at that time, uh, I think around 2014, 15, we started jumping into traveling around shooting for other clients in China and around Asia. But it goes back to what you were saying about being curious. I think I always compare it to, you know, sort of just playing basketball. You could be the best guy in Sham Shui Po, just playing with the same dudes and but you're, you're going to want more, right? Like you want to see like, oh, let me go to the other courts and see how people play as well. You know, you can't just always play with the same guys. So I think that opens up the mindset. So like what gave you the confidence to dive right into like directing and starting agency and doing film when you, like you said, you, you didn't really have a rollout, you know, you didn't have a business model, you didn't have a plan, like yeah. you, just, you just kind of went for it. I think that's why around that era, it was so nice because that confidence kind of just came out of nowhere, you know? I mean, I don't know how to do this, but I don't think the clients really know much about it either because it was such a new platform, right? Shout out to the clients. Shout out to the yeah. clients. So <laughs> at that time, it's like, oh, when we don't want to do the traditional ads on print media or doing TV commercials, like, what could we do? So that's when they came to us for creative solutions. And a lot of times we kind of just propose something really wild and crazy especially for traditional brands and you know they were open to it just because it was just something new so why not give it a try so i think that was a very interesting time for sure obviously it kind of oversaturated yeah like to his point i think that there's something about the mentality in hong kong where you just like find a solution right it's just like i don't know what it is it's like it's never no you can't do it it's like well let's see how far i can achieve this goal based off the parameters. And we all know there's a lot of parameters in Hong Kong, whether it's space, budget, whatever. 
I believe it's always most critical is that you can solve problems. It doesn't matter what type of project business you start, because that's basically what a business does, in my opinion. It's like go in and solve a problem for a client, for a market or whatever. Mm-hmm. I mean, obviously I'm overgeneralizing, but I think that as Hong Kong enters this new sort of generation of what are we going to do and how are we going to survive or sustain or emerge out of this thing, it really comes down to how well we leverage our personality as like a city, a city country, right? Obviously, as I get older, I become less connected with the youth. But I just know that maybe this is a certain generation that we all came out of that all embodied that, right? Like this sort of entrepreneurial creative. Mm. So how much of your work is affected by you being in the city when you run a digital publication? Mm, Not a lot, to be honest. I mean, I think we were forced to be the remote workers before 2020. Like we were on Slack pretty much right when Slack started at Hypebeast, right? Right. And we kind of had to do that because you were trying to run quote-unquote newsrooms in New York or wherever. And we've gotten somewhat good at it being somewhat westernized, but also understanding like the, the nuance of working in an Asian country. Mm-hmm. So I think that you've been able to navigate that and figure out solutions like, well, you know what? I might not be able to be there present with you, but I will certainly achieve the next best thing. And that's kind of to that point, right? Like mm-hmm. we have limitations and parameters, but we kind of know how to work within that and achieve the best possible thing mm-hmm. relative to what challenges I have. Right. So I guess like, Dial it a few steps back. You know, we're talking about digital publication here. Perhaps you can introduce, you know, uh, the publication that you run since leaving Hypebeast. Yeah, so around 2015, myself and my co-founder Alex Mayland, who was the creative director at Hypebeast and I was the editorial director, we both sort of came to terms with like, hey, we'd spent, you know, collectively like 13 years at Hypebeast. I think it was just naturally the end of our road. When you work at a company, you're kind of on lease time. It's like, hey, this is a relationship and there's a finite end to it, right? Mm. And it was like, hey, you know what? Maybe it's time to go and explore something else. And it was right around the time when we felt that digital media had a lot of interesting avenues to pursue. It was like podcasting. It was like digital communities, uh, a lot of different things. And we were like, hey, you know what? We recognize that Hypebeast in itself has become this very successful player in this one lane. And that was sort of like the whole blog, news, quick hits of fashion and streetwear, right? But we are always fascinated with everything beyond that as well because how does an idea turn into a product, right? How do people think about where culture is going? How do they, as you mentioned earlier when we were outside, like engineer culture, right? There's a lot of these interesting things and that was sort of the catalyst for making itself. So it's like, yeah, it's a bunch of stories, it's a newsletter, it's a podcast, it's digital events, it's all these things without necessarily being a nice clean title or a nice clean definition. So would you say one of the main goals was to actually explain the culture versus just putting it in the forefront, which Hypebeast did very well? Yeah, I think that in many ways there's like people, product, process. And I think for the most part, people and process were often left out. But then at the same time, like product is, what's so fascinating about product is like you see it and you can immediately infer like a thousand and one things about it, right? Generally speaking, right? I can look at, okay, I know who this is for. I know this is high quality, low quality. If I touch it, I feel it. But there's so many other things that are behind the scenes or that need to be decided upon to arrive at a final product. And that was always most fascinating to me because once you understand the process and the way people think about things, it's almost interchangeable. I'm confident that if you're a designer in the realm of this world of, let's say, fashion, your thinking can also be applied to a coffee mug, right? Mm -hmm. Or a coffee machine or a car, like 
So that's why for me, it's like the interchangeability of it is what I find most fascinating because that starts from intangible things. Mm-hmm. It's more of like a school of thought, right? It's yeah. like you could apply the same thing to design as you can to gardening, right? And, yeah. and I think that's probably one of the cool ways of looking at how you guys create editorial on making or like, you know, the podcast you guys want making it up. It's always trying to find parallels. And I think as people pursue their creative careers today, like it's so hard to even say that, hey, you know what, I'm this or I'm that because it's, it's more so just about like, hey, I have an idea and it exists in different forms. I think, tell me, you're, you're probably a very good representation of that sort of school of thought where you're like, hey, you know what, today this is going to come out like a piece of clothing, tomorrow is going to be a film, next day it could be an event, right? Yeah, yeah like, for sure. I think that's how it is for all of us as well. And, and I think it goes back to being from that generation as well. You know, we're able to apply our ideas and thoughts into a lot of different platforms. And I think that's what's interesting. Obviously, it's gotten to a point where it's sort of oversaturating. But I think in general, it's still good that everyone is, is getting more creative and kind of just putting their ideas into different things. What do you find are the limitations in being able to like pursue different creative projects without having to settle on like one? Well, I think the main limitation would be right now is just having gone through the past few years of social media and the internet, everyone has too many ideas. I'm sure, you know, all of us have like 15 things that we want to do each time we go into brainstorming. And it's just gotten really hard to sort of focus on one. And we're kind of losing that craft of focusing on what you do best. Mm. Yeah, it goes back to what we were saying before with everything being instant right now. Mm. And people don't want to focus on studying what they should be doing. Right, right. So it's so you're thinking it's more about like people have short attention spans. Yeah, for sure. And, uh, and that's why I kind of want to go back to with the media right now. I think there's obviously a oversaturation of information and people, they just want to read the headlines and look at a photo about a product and that's it. Right. Obviously with Macon, it's like a different approach. It's more in-depth stories for people who have longer attention spans, I guess. Like, how like how, how have you guys tackled that? You guys got the Slack channel and obviously like a newsletter as well. Yeah. When it comes to like length, all that stuff, like this is one thing that we all recognize as quote unquote creatives is that not necessarily creating something for a market and just doing it out of your own personal interest. And that's generally driven how we've approached the things we create. There's things we probably should have done differently, right? It should have been shorter. It should have been this versus that. But I look at it as what are things that will allow me to kind of continue doing this because I'm excited about it, right? But one thing that I think is actually very challenging right now is that I don't doubt that the stuff that is being put out in the world has like an audience for it. It's just that finding the audience is actually the most difficult part of it because of media fragmentation. And what that is, is that, you know, all of us technically kind of run in the same circles, but I can guarantee the media you look at versus you versus me is still different. And what's viral in your world won't be viral in my world. So you'd be like, oh, did you hear what happened? Because it was so big. And I'm like, oh, I never heard about it. Right? right. And I think that yeah. that's the most challenging thing is like, yeah. I might put something out in the world, but I don't necessarily know where to find the audience without paying for it or like, you know, being very specific with my targeting, all that other stuff. Yeah. Right. So that's one part of it. I think that in terms of tackling and finding that, I, at some point, there was like this switch that went off and I was like, hey, you know what? I know that people appreciate what we do. Maybe it's not at the massive scale of like a hype beast, but at the same time, like, it's selfish in a way. Like, I need this because I want to put it out because I think it's important. And whether you, you fuck with it or not, that's fine. And that itself has been a lot easier versus like, oh shit, like 
put something on the world, no one's looking at it, and that means I can't monetize it. Yeah. So the flip is that like if you recognize that media fragmentation and just audience development is like probably one of the most difficult things organically right now. Sure. Then it kind of takes the pressure off of things. Yeah, a hundred percent agree with that. It's like if you just do something just based off of the fact that it needs to exist versus like, hey, how how much monetary value this is worth, then it kind of takes away the pressure as to like why this thing needs to live, right? That the means is different and it's not quantifiable because there's no numbers behind it. It's just based off a of feeling, right? So the question is. How much of your day is based on stuff that you want to do selfish, and how much of it, you know, because we all got to live, we all got to pay rent, right? How does that balance each other out? Like, yeah. So this was the natural progression of the conversation, right? It's like, how do you get paid? Because making for us, like, one, once we actually found a different way to fund it, and that was through like the agency Alex and I started Adam Studios. Like, soon it was like a massive weight lifted off our shoulders because what it meant was that we knew that this thing could sustain, but we didn't have to worry like, oh, was it profitable? Was it making money? Where we doing business development, all that other shit. It was just like, what are the things that we want to do that are fun? So it kind of changes because it doesn't really go from like a media company. It just goes to like a publication or this media thing, whatever you want to call it, right? And I think that the way you look at it is sometimes people get so caught up in the micro of like, oh shit, today like I'm spending 12 out of my 16 hours doing this paperwork, and I'm, I'm not able to be creative. But at the same time, like sometimes you need to kind of look at things from a more zoomed out perspective. Like, what does your next four weeks, your next right. four months look like? And like, I think ultimately you're trying to align things so that you're net positive on the creative side. Mm-hmm. And you're doing things that allow you to make money. And I think this has been a big change too, is that from a business perspective, now that you have two very clear sort of church and state, where one can be creative, you don't have to worry about anything else, and the other side is very business orientated, mm-hmm. it kind of changes your perspective because you're trying to make as much money as possible right. in one avenue, which is like maybe the agency side, because you know that the other side is that much better for it. So it becomes almost like they're protected and they're shielded. That, that much better for it, meaning that... If I want to plow money into this, or I want to like, it'll, it'll buy me time, it'll it. buy me resources, whatever it may be. So how do you measure out how much time you should put into the creative stuff. Like, how do you work on the metrics, if I mean, there is metrics? I think that the one thing that I've enjoyed about operating in the realm of quote-unquote creativity is that we don't need to be so focused on metrics, right? Because there's no, there's no like, oh, you're the most creative person because you scored, you know, 99 out of 100 points. It's not like, I'm going to look at my bank account and like, I was 10 basis points better than the next competitor, right? It doesn't have to work like that. I think the subjectivity of that and the feeling is kind of what drives it. But then there's mm. the reality is like, hey, you know what? I know my living expenses are this. How do I achieve that as soon as possible? If I do one job that pays for my next four months of rent and living expenses, then that fundamentally changes how you think about the stuff you create, right? Right. And I think the big problem here is like, if you can't cover the baseline, you yourself as a creative person doesn't feel that creative because you haven't been able to pay rent, right? Yeah. So that's actually going to affect the other side of your workflow as yeah. a creative person. Yeah, I think it's all about finding the balance. Even just when you're putting out a piece of work, you can put something that's completely out there, but you got to think about who you're communicating with as well. And of course, for example, if I look at it from a media side, you don't want to be the type of media company that's putting out that product shot and that headline and just having people consume it really fast. But you want to do more in-depth stories and stuff with meaning. You still got to find a way to be able to communicate with your audience. Right, right. That goes with what we do as well with sure. products. I mean, I think the, the ideal scenario is to be able to do something that's, that brings in the commerce, right? That's like brand-driven, 
but you can still be creative. Yeah. And I think Adam Studio is obviously a great example of, and also with what you do with your music videos as well, because you guys can parlay your creativity, which you probably would do anyway, into something that's actually a paid gig, right? Yeah. Like, that's why I think when you take that approach to different aspects of life, you'll be able to achieve the perfect balance of, right. of what makes you happy. For example, if we were doing you know, certain stuff for brands or for artists, you definitely have to look at it from their perspective. I'm, mm. not gonna, I'm not gonna go and make a music video for a pop star and try to add in all this like crazy weird underground stuff to it. Sure. I'll add something that's, you know, I guess meaningful for, from, from why I'm doing it. But at the same time, I gotta cater to their audience as well. You yeah. know? And I think that goes with working with brands as well. We're, we're not gonna, you know, there's this framework of what's on brand but you could add. Yeah, like I heard this this really interesting quote um, from this American chef, Kristen Kish, and we did like a, a story with her for a campaign. And she said, it's not really about balance, I'm paraphrasing, but it's not really about balance so much as harmony, right? So like, if you do that pop star music video and it's like super commercial, but you're okay with it because you recognize the audience and it's not at all artsy, mm-hmm. and there's no sort of like element of discovery, that's totally fine because that is what, what you need to do, right? And you're, yeah. you're okay with that. And I think that's one of the most important things is like, everyone's like, oh, work-life balance. But if I'm happy, you know, putting in 13-hour days, mm. then I don't think I need to necessarily balance that out if I'm harmonious with that. Right. You know? Yeah. It's two in the same, but also a little bit different in terms of how you think about it. Yeah, I mean, I guess it's also subjective, right? It's like, if you have the best job in the world, you also don't want to fire yourself, right? But then it's, it's up to your wife to tell you that you haven't really been spending time with her. Exactly. So it's like, it's based on the scenario itself. But I think going back to the idea of like brand stuff and creativity, I always found that like when we used to work to Hypebeast together, like a lot of the sales stuff that came through, whether it's from a brand that didn't really exist in the Hypebeast world and it was our job to make it, relevant. Make it work. I found that creative process really interesting and fun yeah. because yeah. it's like, I don't know if it's like a personality thing or whatever, but I always like trying to make things work in situations that don't work, right? It's like a challenge that's quite interesting, right? It's like, how do you mask it in a way? Or like, how do you pull certain significant strains out of it and and, and then put it in this world that it's not part of, right? And I think that's why rebranding heritage brands are always like really interesting projects, I find, you know, like whether it's working on the cost or whatnot, you know? Yeah, for sure. I think that's the right mentality to look into it. I'm sure I was like that at a certain point as well. It's like, oh, this is pretentious. Like, I don't want to do it. But, you know, if you actually look at it from a positive side, there's always something good that comes out of it. Mm. And I think that's also what I kind of mean with finding that right balance. Sure. And it goes back to whatever you think it's right, yeah. you'll feel happy about it. I mean, it's portfolio work, it's a paycheck. It's like, yeah, exactly. pick and choose, right? Some, are, some actually hit everything. Yeah, 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 right? yeah, It's meaningful work, all this other stuff. I think for us, you know, whether it's with Yeti Out or with me, with the private label stuff or just, you know, doing music, whatever, with Macon, we all sort of, put out what we feel is good. Um, uh-huh. It's 100% us, like our visions. We put that out. That also attracts the, the commercial side of things. And when yeah, we make that money, sure. we put it into putting more of our own stuff, right? I'm just at that point of my quote-unquote career or whatever. It's to like, yeah, I've been doing that for a while. And yeah. I've been very like impulsive in terms of like, yo, this is rad, let's do it. Like yeah. a lot of Yeti Out projects are so tight in deadlines. Like, Carol, no, but like it's just like super like yo, like this, this is sick. Like me and my brother both like 
minor ADD. So we're just like, let's get it out there, right? Yeah. But it's like now we're gonna start thinking in a way where it's like, how do we, how do we just stop reacting to that and mm. actually make some sort of buzz or some sort of noise where brands would be like, yo, this yeah. is cool. Like, let me tap that guy yeah. for a DJ gig or like, let me mm-hmm. let him consult on mm-hmm. a production that's actually got a, got a bag, right? Yeah. But that is so feeling based, right? Yeah. It's not like quantitative. And I think as you hit certain timelines where it, you know, like stuff like this is happening where there's limited amount of jobs, you know, like you start having to think, hey, you know what? What's the next four months gonna look like? How do I start planning this instead mm. of just doing stuff based on feeling? But I feel like that's so critical because like if we're so analytical and methodical from the start, it just, and there's no soul to it. Yeah. Like I look at all the shit I've done and like in the very early days of making, we put out some stuff that I don't think anyone else could have, should have done based off of the application of resources and the output. It's like, dude, you're spending this much time to put a story for like mm. 500 people, mm. right? Like mm. it doesn't make sense. But at the same time, it's like you're kind of collecting all these experiences that then can inform a more crystallized version of what you need to do to move forward. Mm. So like un- until you go and do it, like you'll never know. And I think it's more than okay for someone to go and put out something imperfect, just like you started a creative agency without really knowing how it's done. Right. So you get to a point where, okay, now I know what I do want to do and don't want to do. Because if you never did it, like, how do you know you don't want to do sure, it? And how do you exactly. improve upon it? Because basically you're collecting all these experiences, aka ingredients. And then once you've like understood like what are the best things, then I can kind of move forward. So, so like the process itself is the learning and totally. it, it is the coaching, right? Dude, like if you guys were always like, the timeline's tight, I don't want to do it. Think about all the things that you would have left on the table. And now mm. that you have this body of work that has obviously opened doors in many ways for you guys, right? Sure. Like that would have never happened if you guys were waiting for the most perfect moment. And the thing I always tell people is that the shit you put out versus how much better it could have been, only you know that. Right. True. Right. No, True. only yeah. you know that, right? So think about it like you guys did the the whole collaboration with Coach a few months ago or like last year or whatever. And like shit, like I'm sure there's a lot of things that you would have preferred to do and it would have been better. And it doesn't matter because like at the end of the day, like you have the body of work. And when you build a brand, when you build a personality, it's never about one particular moment in time. Even if that does define you, if you can't build off of that, it's meaningless, sure. right? You crash right. and you burn. So it's more like, how do I build things and how do I like start amassing? Because I think at the end of the day, at some point, people want to work with a brand because of trust and because of what they represent. And it's like, how often and how well can you do that? So if you're able to put something out with regularity, that's almost more important than it being like perfect, the best shit anyone's ever seen. Because sure. you can't follow it up, then what? Right. So it's like what you're saying is like it should be out, and your idea should be out, and let it live as version one, and then piggyback off of that, yeah. versus just like keeping it to yourself yeah. until it's like perfect, right? Like I mean, let let's use our example working at Hypebeast. Like if I look back. I would say the writing was never good, but it was consistent as fuck, right? Like we put it out every single day, 365 days a year. And like that in itself was probably the most important thing. And sure. now you build, 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 right? It's not, it's not like you're regressive because obviously every single day is a little bit better than the next one. And yeah. that's how you kind of build something, mm. right? That's I true, always man. go back to the first time I did a video shoot. Basically, right when I started the creative agency, we got an offer to do a music video, and we were just like, "Fuck, we don't. We weren't planning on doing a music video for somebody. Like, you know, we didn't even figure out what we were gonna do yet. But let's just go do it anyway." So the concept that we had was to shoot puppies. Basically, Sick. we just <laughs> casted like five puppies, and then, but like me being me now, I'm just gonna 
ban that idea right away. Like, how, how are we going to shoot puppies within the span of 10 hours? Right. It's not going to work out. You're not going to be able to control it. How them. many puppies were there, though? Five. We needed them to act and everything. What? Yeah, so they were playing like a little dice game, like shit like that. That's crazy. And there was no way it was going to happen, but it's also because I had no clue what was going on. So we we're just like, fuck it, let's do it. Right, right, right. right. And I think that sort of mentality is great because it's like about keeping yourself young and keeping yourself curious. I 100%. think that's when you will explore more. Like me now, 10 years later, when I sort of approach clothing, I'm just like, I have no clue how to sew a piece of cloth or right. you know, do any of that cut and sew stuff. But let me try to do it a certain way. And, and you know, sometimes I would just go with the designs and then the tailor would just look at it and be like, why are you wasting your yeah. effort on doing this? Like, it, it doesn't make sense, right? But sure. that's the mentality that I had when I started shooting puppies. Just yeah, being curious, so, right? Yeah. Right, so it's, it's, that, it's that energy of always just being psyched, like always being stoked. Yeah, you know? so like, that's why we got to keep finding new puppies. platforms and new well, puppies. Oh, sorry, yes, 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 all right, yes. my bad. Platform. New platform. <laughs> platform for puppies. Yes, yes, yes. No, no, 100%, man. I think it's like always just sort of, I, I don't know, I always take this sort of mentality of like just always, I just say yes to the meeting, I say yes to the opportunity, yeah. and then I just figure it out, right? Yeah, it could turn into Maybe something Maybe shouldn't else. be broadcasting, man. Yeah. No, but I mean, think like, about when I first met you, we were at that dinner and then you keep talking to me about like doing parties and stuff, right? Right, right. Who would have thought like, how many years has it been now? Like six years, seven years? Eight. Eight years? You know, you would have never thought that Yeti Out would become like this whole thing. Maybe you right. have, but there's certainly a lot of different things that came in that kind of changed the way 100%. You know, you're I, exploring new things, right? I don't know if like dreaming is like a good word or like an analogy or like a school of thought, but I think a lot of things to do with events and like production is always just like when you take a meeting or you take like a, a call and have a creative brief or whatever, right? They tell you what they want or like you see an opportunity and then you just imagine it in your head, right? Yeah. And then I think from the moment you say yes, then you're just driving whatever energy and resources you have towards that image in your head. So I think naturally you sort of make things happen because you can already see it, right? So I think that's a lot to do with events and parties yeah. or like putting out records or like, you know, when I'm really stoked on like a band or a DJ or an artist, I'm like, like you see an opportunity or you see like a potential in something that maybe the person doesn't even see, right? But you're like, you know what? We can do this. Like, we can take this to MoMA. We can, you know, whatever. You're dreaming big, right? And maybe you, you might not get there in like the next two years or the four years or whatever, but like, you're somewhat driving towards that, right? So then, you know, maybe when we had dinner like eight years ago, I wouldn't have thought that we'd be doing a coach collab, but like, that's a very specific example. But yeah. would I have thought that we would be doing something of that level, that kind of collaboration? Yeah, maybe because I was thinking like, this is going to be like more global, right? I was working towards that. So I guess, when stuff like that happens, it's like, okay, well, now you got to troubleshoot and be like, okay, how do you get the best sort of arrangement out of that specific situation? But I think a lot of the times in terms of like from idea to reality, there isn't really like a step-by-step -step guide. It's just about like thinking big, right? It's just like, sure. how far can I take this? Yeah. And if it doesn't get to like, you know, that image in your head, at least you're settling for like a few steps back. But you're still, it's still further than like what the original plan was, you know? Yeah. And it's definitely the same vision as well. Like when you look at it from doing a party at a dive bar to right. doing a party for a brand, you should always keep that same vision in your head. Sure, definitely. Well, I think event and production is, is definitely like such a interesting area to work in because you're just constantly troubleshooting, right? Like nothing goes to plan and like 
we were talking about this the other day with my other friend who's a promoter, and you know, we were saying how are you working on events right now given like the situation, and he's just saying, well, look, you know, we've been troubleshooting for most of our careers. This is just another hurdle. As if the DJ didn't turn up, or like he misses flight, or we have to like redo sound check or whatever. It's just like it's the nature of the job, right? And in a similar way, like I think most people who have been trained working within subcultures, when they are put into like a scenario where they're working with brands or working with bigger clientele, they know how to adapt to these challenges because they've been trained, right? Like it's like I remember like. Eugene and I worked on a few projects together during Hypebeats, but you know he was he sent me to like powwow, and I had a lot of really interesting conversations at this graffiti mural festival with these graffiti artists who were given like a week to do a mural, right? But then they're like, "Yo, we paint graffiti at night between trains, and we throw up within like you know half hour or whatever, right?" And you're giving us a week to do a mural? That's crazy, you know? Like <laughs> this, you know? And again, it's like these sort of settings where like you know your training might be applied to a different scenario. Yeah. That has a bigger bag, right? But then you can adapt to that given scenario. Um, how do you guys stay connected to what's current? I mean, I know Eugene's got a crazy feedly. Yeah. So our careers were generally based around like what's the new shit, what's cool. You also have to come to the realization that ain't no one looking at a 35 year old telling what's fucking cool, right? You kind of need to know what the progression of that is. And for me, it was like recognizing that there's always a next generation especially in the realm of youth culture, there's always going to be some next, next stuff, right? So how do you support the incoming generation with your experience? And like a lot of the conversation we had early on today was about like business and like how to frame yourself for opportunities. And I think that has become my sort of point of interest. And I've always been thinking about like, how do you build that lineage? Because like I'm turning 36 this year. You're like, what, 32? Mm-hmm. So you're four years younger. Like let's call those like mini generations, right? How do you build that sort of lineage? And every step of the way, you're trying to support each other. Mm. So like, it might be weird for me to go and find like a 21-year-old to take under my wing, but it's like, Mm. how do you find ways that I can support people? Like, you'll probably know people that are four years younger than you. Sure. And and likewise. And I think supporting them in what their aspirations and their dreams are are super critical. And that's Mm. how I stay quote-unquote connected. Because like, to your point about the puppies, right? Like, at this point in time, you would probably not personally take that on. But if someone has that idea... How do you help them deconstruct the challenge so if they have that puppy idea, they can do it? And I think that's what's most important for me is like, I've always been big on community slash ensuring that these people can explore their interests and make it viable, Mm. right? And in terms of like staying on top of things, like you guys know I don't really listen to music, right? And I think music is such an important sort of barometer for where culture is. I know like on a very superficial, like macro scale, but I don't know who's popping off. So it's more like, how do you identify people that you trust and they can come in and sort of be a part of the scene in mm. terms of painting it for sure. you, right? Yeah. Because I, I provide a canvas, so to say. Mm. And then they come in and they fill in the rest. Part of you also has to be like careful because you're not here to like be a culture vulture, so to say. Mm. You're just really trying to help people out. And like if it kicks back, then cool. But otherwise, I think that you have to be very careful of that sort of mindset of like, hey, I'm going to make some money off of this. Mm. You being the canvas, meaning you being the platform. Or just helping. I don't want to be as, as official as like, I'm going to create this platform and I'm going to like suck in all this young talent so much as like, yeah. hey, I know people that might be able to help you. If you're like, you have a video and you want to go to Shanghai, like, oh, let me put you in touch with some people I might have met over the course of my career. Yeah. Right? Like that to me is a very low level way of looking at it, but it could also be a little bit more in depth. Sure. Like, do you want me to come in and help you like negotiate this deal? Got it. Yeah. Just sort of connecting 
with younger people, but also taking the opportunity to like speak to as many people as possible, man. Like I think with Yeti, we're fortunate enough to be able to do events and parties in certain regions and certain scenes, you know. And, and I think when we're actually in these places, we're meeting talent, you know. I mean, talent in the most organic way. Like you know, we're connecting within the clubs and stuff like that. And I'm just trying to phrase it in a way that where it's not corny, right? But it's like if you're always going to places and you're interested in like the new scenes and like the new culture that's happening there, then you're, you're always going to be like plugged in with what's happening, right? Mm-hmm. And I think I have a bit of like ADD in terms of like, I always want to know more, right? So it's like, mm-hmm. there's always so much more. You've been following like two blogs, but then there's this new blog called Stamp the Wax and they're just talking about like Afro psychedelia. And you're mm-hmm. like, dude, I know like some things about that. Like I know like Fela Kuti and like Sun mm-hmm. Ra, but like that's still so much I need to yeah. learn about, you know? Yeah. So it's like, you kind of find yourself going in these rabbit holes of mm-hmm. like, things are adjacent to another. And then, and I think like going back to ideas and what creative people do, like everything's interconnected, right? Like, you know, we all have to leave the house wearing something in the, in the morning. Does that make a stylist? No, but the thing is like, you could be if you mm. said you were, right? Yeah. It's, it's only subjective if someone said, hey, you actually, you're bad at what you do. You're a yeah. bad stylist. That's someone's opinion. Yeah. But subjectivity is not right or wrong, right? It's yeah, just an yeah, opinion. Yeah. Exactly. So it goes to anything, right? It's like, if you listen to music, does that mean you're a music curator? Uh, no, but yes, it could be too, right? So then everything we do, you can turn it into some level of curation, right? Like, you know, it's like anything that you're interested in, it's up to you to magnify. Given that as a parameter of like no sort of limitations, then suddenly you're just flooded with like anything is an opportunity and your bandwidth is a lot, it's a lot wider, you know? So staying connected is like an ongoing thing, you know? It's just like, yeah, there's always so much more to learn about. And I think, kind of piggybacking off of what Eugene said is like always hanging out with people who are coming up in the scene or, or people who have a different vision or, or outlook, you know, especially with artists. I know you work with Young Queens a lot. Like there's an other artists that we're working with in China right now. You know, like the way they're dropping music is completely different from the way that I'm used to, right? Like you do like singles, EP, LPs. People are just dropping mixtapes on like the dark web now, right? And then they go and plug it through their social media on the Instagram and Twitter or like Weibo. They'd be like, okay, I just dropped a 14 track mixtape unmastered on Pornhub, for example. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Go check that. So like, you know, this is completely different from like digital distribution or physical distribution. Yeah. It's just a lot of times these artists, their physical appearance and their art is perhaps less to do with their music as it is to do with their energy and their online personality, right? Mm-hmm. So, you know, when you're working with and I say working in the most like fun sense, right? Like when you're connecting with these people, it's like you're learning about a whole different world of how young people are listening to music and are connecting to music releases. And it's not how I was when I was a kid, like going to Blockbuster or buying music or, yeah, or even exactly. like downloading from, from Kazaa or Morpheus. Like it changes every six months, right? Yeah, to yeah. like, you know, every, every month. Exactly. You know? So I think it's an, I think the interest and constant curiosity of staying on top of like the influx of new media and the way it, it's released, it's, it's just innovation in itself. Yeah, right? it's like, a constant learning process for sure. And I think for us, being in our age, a lot of people who are around the same age as us, they would be comfortable with where they're at and they kind of don't want to check out the new stuff or learn about the new stuff. They would just keep thinking like, oh, it's just a cycle of this and that. You know, it's all, all repeating, but there's definitely something new to learn. When you mention about Young Queens, is it's kind of funny because for me, I was at a point in my career when everything started to feel stale. You know, every project just sort of felt the same. And then I was actually very blessed to be able to meet a lot of the interns that 
was working for us at the time. And also, I was still doing parties at X and just kind of seeing the kids. It was wild at, at that point as well, where sort of like 14, 15-year-old kids were going to the club. Shout they, out they were, Yeah, shout out Triple X for <laughs> sure. They weren't, you know, because they, they don't ID anybody. It's just like a warehouse thing. We can say this now. Yeah, we can say this now. But like, you know, the whole, it was a warehouse thing. And, you know, as long as you just go in, no one cares. Right. You know, and none of these kids were drinking at right. all. Like, they just came with their Coke Zero or whatever, and they're just dancing all night. And I think that's like, kind of like, I think we're veering off to a different topic here, but I think that's what's really important about club culture. It's yeah. like, a lot of times, it's a misconception that, hey, you know, you go to a club, you're taking drugs, you're macking on girls. Mm-hmm. Sure, that could happen. Yeah. But a lot of the time, it's also just about breaking bread under one roof, right? It's yeah, all about just, sure. hey, you know what? We're dancing to the for same sure. beat. We're, yeah. We might not even speak the same language. You know, mm-hmm. like you could be in Razzmatazz in Barcelona or yeah. wherever, right? Like yeah. You could be in all in Shanghai, or whatever. And, and you're just, you might not even speak the same language as a person, but the fact that you're sharing a moment, yeah. that in itself is actually more connectivity than for sure. it is by putting two people in a boardroom and be like, hey, you know what? Give me ideas. This is a Nike meeting. That's very true, actually. I think to me, language obviously has a lot of power. But at the same time, if you're into the same stuff, whether it's you're into that culture or, you know, certain type of music, club culture, certain aesthetic, whatever, I think it doesn't matter. Like, we could go anywhere in the world. And the moment you step into a space where it's created under the same mentality as you, you feel at home more than anything else. Like, you don't have to speak to anybody, you don't have to speak the same language. Sure. That sense of connection is like very unique, right? Right. And I think, you know, it's something that you can't really replicate. For example, if we talk about media, I mean, I'm sure we all have like a long list of stuff that we could talk about. Dragon Town Trap House. We got to talk about that though. Because before we go to the media part, (laughs) if we go to the media part, (laughs) we're talking about like how you can be connected to other people just like in the same area, right? And you were talking about Young Queens and I I just wanted to, to explore that party series you did with Young Queen mm-hmm. and how, you know, you're saying most people that went there weren't even getting fucked up. They were just there for the music and the energy. Yeah. What was the main sort of mission that you guys wanted to create with that party series? Okay, so Dragontown Trap House was, uh, well, still is. It's a monthly party series uh, that me and Young Queens used to do uh, at Triple X once a month. It was just straight trap music all night. Obviously, it only lasted for a year because after Triple X closed, we still haven't found the right venue to do it at. It just doesn't feel right. And um, we decided to put that out because in the main bars or clubs in Hong Kong, they were still playing music that, you know, I guess it catered to a lot of kids at the time. But we just felt like there was this new energy that was popping up for, for the kids in the city and we wanted to bring that out. So we decided to do it monthly. If you want to come, you could just come check it out. Again, like I said, there was no age limitation. So at one point it was hilarious because there's obviously friends of mine who are in the creative industry and they want to see what's up. Like they, they felt like, oh, this is the new shit. So let, let's check it out, right? So there's all these like older people in their 30s, like they were there, but there was also like, you know, I think the youngest kid was like, 13. There was a 13-year-old kid there. Damn. We only know because uh, friends of mine just saw him dancing on the dance floor and he knew every lyric to every song. Jumps around, basically it was soaked in sweat. Mm. And he was holding like a bottle of water in his hand and then people were just like, dude, this kid looks like he's 10. 
<laughs> so they were like, Let, let's go and like talk to him. And then they were just like, oh, how old are you? And he was like, oh, I'm 13. And I remember he came to every single one. And That's sick. That's sick, right? That's yeah, it's sick. That sort of energy that you create is at a point where language doesn't matter. If you go in and you are able to cover yourself into that energy, then you'll feel at home. Right, and that's right. the, sort of the experience that we tried to create. Also, at one point, I think for me, I had another mission. I wanted to um, get more of the younger generation of kids to go to Triple X. Sure. Um, to explore different types of music. So I felt like trap music at the time. This was around like 2016. Yeah. I felt like that could attract more kids to try to come more often like, oh, if they feel like, oh, this space is nice, this yeah. energy is great, they'll come for the other nights as well. Maybe they'll experience grime or garage or yeah. whatever bass music that we were playing that night. The thing is like by creating so club nights, like that might have the same effect as an editorial that might run on your platform, right? It's like, it's just a different medium in terms of like how it's communicated, right? Like one's an offline experience, one's an online experience. There's a connection here, right? Because on the one hand, it's triple X, right? Mm -hmm. And there's like, you know, we're talking right now, like three, four years ahead. And, you know, James is hosting us in Eaton and he, mm -hmm. he was obviously like instrumental to that scene. And then, mm -hmm. you know, about a stone's throw away, like five minutes, we have the making first office, which is also in Daigot Zhou. Yeah. yeah. And then me and Leo's studio was also like yeah, in a there, two yeah. minute walk from triple yeah. X. So, yeah. You know, I remember we used to go down there after after we had dinner, and you know, we'd go with our our, our flip flops, and we had a cup of teas, and then we'd just go and DJ, and then we actually go back, and and I think that scene around that time, like I think it was like 2016, 2017, 2018, it was like a lot of cool stuff happened. You know, I think like Bound opened, like yeah. we just released the NYPD record based uh, off of that. Yeah, I mean that band was formed around that time of the studio, and I think there was a lot of creative energy yeah. in that area, and I think that's why. Space is like super important. A lot of times in, in Hong Kong, it's, it, it might be frustrating because you might be brainstorming with your friend at like a ta tan tang, and then you know it's like you find out it's right? But then you get you get you get kicked out. But a lot of times ideas don't really come out unless you're like hanging out together hours and yeah. hours. You know? Yeah. yeah. I kind of feel like we're the only people that would hang out at a ta tan tang though. And try to brainstorm in a ta tan tang. Like, oh, but I mean, like people don't do that. Like, I'm just thinking, like, like we are the only people that do that. I mean, people might be hanging out, right? But it's like, yeah, well, shoot, shoot, like, shoot, after you, after you yeah, finish, a your limitation. Yeah. Well, what do you go after? You, like, yeah. that's why people always been hanging out and loading, man. Just like, nothing to do, you know? Sure. Like, I think it, that, that's an interesting thing as well. That sense of space. I guess having said all that stuff, uh, where do you see the future of media going? It's like super challenging because you need to unpack it from so many different perspectives. It's like platform, monetization, just the culture of it too. What we sort of delve into and in, in the, the world we operate is maybe a little bit insulated from the bigger picture of like journalism and truth, right? I think that's the biggest issue you see right now, like fake news, all that other stuff. But in the realm of like creative media, it's probably a little bit different. And I think the major challenges in creative media are just like, how do you sustain yourself and how do you like monetize and whatnot? And the challenge becomes bifurcated, right? Because like you're, you're starting to open up two very clear channels, like ad-supported media, which is primarily entertainment-driven. It has to be scale and generally like clickbait, just like shit that you won't remember in like yeah. a week, right? And then you have time spent creating actual content. Maybe it's more evergreen, maybe it's more produced, more effort, right? So like how do you balance those two? Because my philosophical take is that you don't want to be in a position where like only the haves, like people that have money can afford 
quality content. How do you find a way to like balance those two or, or arrive at a conclusion or, or a, a model that allows everyone to mm. get the best? And I think it'll probably need to go down the route of some sort of like supporter-based approach, but it doesn't necessarily mean like, oh, you pay, you get the content. It's more like, hey, maybe it's 10% of the overall audience that supports the whole thing. And unfortunately, that has to be it. And maybe that doesn't necessarily mean you build super lucrative businesses, but you can still exist and you can still create the things that you need to create. And I mean, for us, we're kind of like reader supported slash also exploring like what does product look like? Like Derek just designed a bunch of t-shirts for us that are going to be really cool. So I think that you're trying to come to terms with that. Mm -hmm. I think it's also just audience development is tough, right? It's just like back to the point I mentioned before, it's media fragmentation, finding people that will care the most about your product is not easy. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Mm. Yeah. And so as things are constantly changing, apart from running it as a digital platform, and obviously you guys do the podcast, will you expand into print? Is that like a medium that you guys might, might target? Alex is probably more of a print guy than me. I, mm. I'm more of like a cerebral, like ideas don't necessarily need to be on paper mm. to be impactful. Mm. But I also need to remove myself from that conversation too, because what I think is right might not be what's required for you to disseminate a message. Because I think media without the ability to like have someone consume your message is also not the best thing. Let's put it this way. It's like to simplify it. If for whatever reason, the best way to get our message across was to do like these 300 word short stories that I felt were lacking in context and detail, but that was the best way to get people involved and interested, then I need to remove myself from that conversation, right? Because mm. it's kind of like you need to balance and find the right equation for you to be impactful. Because media that doesn't have any audience, like that also doesn't necessarily mean it's successful unless it just becomes a pure art project. And mm. I think we're coming to terms of what, what we are. Like, yes, it's part art project, but it also has aspirations of being self-sustaining on a on a business front too. Right. But it's just that right now the business is taken care of by someone else, AKA Adam Studios. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And there's the idea that there's so much choice ever put, you know, what you do into a place where it's off-putting. Like, does the idea of that ever like discourage you? Choice in what context? Choice in, in media, choice in consumption. For other people? For other people, yeah. Not really, because I think that we've identified something that we feel passionate about that we could do for a long time. I don't want to say for the rest of my life, but you know, I've been doing this quote-unquote media thing since I was like 22, right? That's almost like 15 years, going, going on 15 years. But it's the same thing for you guys. It's like, you guys have all identified something that in the face of a lack of like business, you've still done it, right? And I think that's actually incredibly important because how many people do you know that have started something and then within 12 months, like you never hear about it again? You know, they had this really good rise, hit a bump and they're like, oh, I'm out. Yeah, for sure. And I think that's, there's something said about that, whether it's like stupidity or like just, just headstrong and keep doing it. But consistency, like you said, and like just keeping at it is it, definitely like I mean, one of the things. Re like, remove the idea of financial reward, and there's some other reward there, mm -hmm. right? It's like connection with other people, friendship, personal interest, personal mm -hmm. creativity that's being fulfilled. I think there's a fundamental over indexing. We focus too much on the financial reward and we fail to realize there's a lot of other reward that just doesn't take place in the form of like, what's my bank account? Not to say mm. you pay your rent with like a friendship or a connection, but that can be just as rewarding towards like your bottom line of happiness. At the end of the day, like Hong Kong is kind of a weird place because we see so much money around us and we're led to believe at some point, or me anyways, that money will be the, the primary force of happiness. Mm. But how many rich ass people do you know that I'm not happy. 
Sure. Right? And I think that at least we have another tool to like arrive at a point of happiness that isn't financially driven. And we're fortunate in that capacity. Totally agree. Right? For sure. Like you and I probably can speak to this because we left relatively like stable jobs to do our own thing. And like your yearly take home is probably a lot less than what it was at Hypebeast or it fluctuates a lot more, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. But I don't know if you necessarily want to go back to the office life for that stability, right? And you've replaced that lack of stability with other things. For sure. I yeah. think, I'm, I don't want to speak on your behalf. No, definitely. I think like creative freedom and being able to turn an idea into reality with yourself and maybe your team of two or three as the only people who are running the approval process is far more efficient and far more liberating than running on someone else's time, right? Exactly. Sure. Yeah, that sense of satisfaction is definitely irreplaceable, I think, with, with the money side of things. Yeah. I mean, amidst everything that's been going on in the last three to six to nine months, mm -hmm. I've been fortunate. Like, I'm probably in a different position than other people, but I've been just like recalibrating how I look at things. I'm like, I'm fortunate to have the opportunity to connect with people. Like, mm -hmm. that to me is always going to be way more valuable than what was the financial reward that I'm missing out on. Yeah. Because at yeah, the end of the day, sure. it's like we're always looking at progress and where we're moving in relation to other people in a timeline, right? But if you remove that, like, you just kind of like take stock of, yeah, maybe like I had a goal to be here at the end of 2020. Obviously, that's out the window, but it doesn't necessarily detract from other things I have around me that are positive forces. Which is kind of what you're saying in your newsletter or your bulletin, that you, which is like your goals might shuffle, but you, sh you shouldn't exactly let that like affect like other things that are positive, yeah. right? I mean, you could be like, hey, I want to have a family by the age of 35 and I want to have a house and I want to have like a vacation home in Thailand. But for whatever reason, like something else became more important or it didn't happen. And like, mm. it doesn't necessarily mean you can't strive for that at some point. It's just like, yeah. It's just but then the other flip side is that like, if you don't achieve it, maybe it wasn't even that important in the mm. first place because mm, it didn't sure. become a goal that you actually needed to achieve that badly. Mm -hmm. There's certain things that I think I want. And then I realize like, the ease in which I put something down means it probably wasn't that important. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's hard to say what's procrastination and what's like lack of importance, right? Because like something could be actually important to you, but you might not have learned how to gain the skills to get to that. So then you're putting it off. So yeah. sort of having that clarity. But I think in a time like this, like it's also important to just like stay connected, given the fact that certain channels are sort of locked off, you know, and you know we're lucky enough to have certain platforms and certain tools, whether it's digital or whatnot, to be able to continue this dialogue. Connections can happen in both URL and IRL scenarios. Whether that's a Slack group, amongst like-minded creatives, or an impromptu but inspiring conversation in a dimly lit dive bar. Eugene's discernment stems from years working with digital tools amongst a global creative community. While myself and Tedman's events show that in-person experiences are more important now than ever. The creative journey is one that constantly overlaps, and there's never really an end to a project. It's just merely a continuation of episodes. While working in the creative field is often met with challenges, we learn that a community that's connected through curiosity will always find new ways to adapt to the challenges. Thanks for tuning into the Joyce podcast. Stay tuned and goodbye. Peace. <laughs>